Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. I'm recording this on August 21st, 2019, the third day of classes here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, just came from a lab with some P2s, introducing them to some drug information resources. Uh, and thanks for tuning in to, eh, I guess you could call this like a drug information type podcast. Um, along those lines, somebody reached out to me on the Twitter uh, asking uh, if I could offer CE for this or I'd considered that. And um, I had not really considered that. Um, if many more of you are interested, something that I certainly could pursue. So let me know. Uh, DM me, tweet me. Uh, let me know. Email me if, if that's something you're interested in. It's something that I will I will certainly look into uh, further than I already have. Uh, today I'm going to talk about some new drug approvals. Uh, the first one is Entrectinib, which was approved on uh, the 15th uh, last month by the FDA. Now, this is not Entresto. This is Entrectinib. Entresto, it's that heart failure drug that you, you know, if you're a recent graduate in a college of pharmacy, you heard like 20 or 30 minutes straight on Entresto from your cardiology professor, but you've only seen two people on it since then in practice. Um, so Entrectinib, this is an, an, an accelerated approval by the FDA. Uh, for adults and children down to the age of 12 for NTRK fusion gene positive solid tumors. That's neurotropic tyrosine receptor kinase. Um, now, this is the second drug in that class approved. Uh, larotrectinib was approved in November. So this is a site agnostic approval. So NTRK fusion solid tumor um, that is not amenable to surgery or would be disfiguring, um, that sort of thing. Oh, wait, I'm getting that mixed up with... Uh, no, no, I'm not. Yeah. So solid tumor that's NTRK positive with no other treatment option. Same approval as larotrectinib. Uh, now this was also approved for ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer. So this drug was approved as a new chemical entity for two indications at the same time. So NTRK positive solid tumors and then ROS1 positive non-small cell lung cancer. Now, both approvals are based off of tiny studies, like 50 patients in each study, uh, with overall response rate as the endpoint, hence the accelerated approval. Um, I'm not going to get a whole lot into the efficacy because these are small studies, kind of a niche uh, process here, but in the ROS1 study, 51 patients, overall response rate was 78% with ROS1. Uh, in, the, in, in the NTRK study, response rate overall was 57%, 54 patients. So again, small studies, decent response rates, but that's all we have for response rate. So from an entrectinib, the dose is 600 milligrams a day without regard for food. Um, it's a 100 and 200 milligram uh, capsule, so at least uh, 300 um, dosage forms per dose. Uh, now, the PEDS dosing, or at least the um, dosing for people with a smaller body weight, um, is dependent on body surface. So the dose goes either 400 or 500 milligrams based off of BSA, say less than 1.5, for example. So what I want to focus on here is a little bit of a, a comparison between entrectinib and larotrectinib, since we have two drugs that are approved for NTRK um, fusion gene positive solid tumors, not compared to each other. So if we look at kind of the pharmacology here, uh, one of the first things that we're going to see is that entrectinib inhibits uh, a wider array of tyrosine kinases. So larotrectinib inhibits, according to the PI, 
um, TRK, which is the tyrosine kinase that is encoded by the neurotropic tyrosine receptor kinase gene. So it inhibits TRK A, B, and C, which corresponds to NTRK1, NTRK2, NTRK3. So fairly specific in inhibiting NTRK uh, gene products. Intrectinib also inhibits uh, TRK, A, B, and C, but also inhibits ROS1, of course, uh, JAK2, um, ALK, uh, and TNK2, also known as ACK1. So it's a little bit more promiscuous as a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And generally, when we see kinase inhibitors that inhibit multiple kinases, uh, we see more toxicity. Uh, they are both metabolized via 3A4. Uh, Intrectinib prolongs the QT interval, whereas lerotrectinib does not. So it might be a decision tree uh, point for somebody who has prolonged QT syndrome or is on amiodarone or some other drug where you're worried about QT prolongation. Lerotrectinib makes more sense than intrectinib. Uh, It's pretty significant in some patients. 3% of patients had more than a 60 millisecond increase in their corrected QTC using the Framingham correction scale. Uh, Moving down to warnings precautions. Lerotrectinib has three warnings and precautions uh, that are shared with intrectinib, one of which is uh, embryofetal toxicity. The other is hepatotoxicity. Both these agents have about a 40 to 50% incidence of elevated LFTs with a grade three or four elevation in LFTs um, being somewhere in the neighborhood of around 3%. Uh, So patients need their LFTs checked at baseline and every two months initially. They both also have box warnings for uh, neurotoxicity in the case of larotrectinib or CNS effects in the case of intrectinib. And it's about, you know, 6% severe neurotoxicity. That's a grade three or four toxicity with larotrectinib, including things like delirium, paresthesias, and encephalopathy. And there's a podcast back in, from November on larotrectinib. Now, the CNS effects in the box warning for intrectinib is 4.5%, including cognitive impairment, dizziness, mood disorders like anxiety or depression, a wide array of things. Uh, now, this TNK2 or ACK1, um, you know, that intrectinib inhibits that kinase is involved in brain development. Uh, so possible uh, explanation there is an off-target toxicity, CNS toxicities. Um, now we get into the warnings and precautions that we see with intrectinib that we don't see with larotrectinib. And remember, intrectinib inhibits a wider array of tyrosine kinases, so it's not surprising it has uh, a more severe toxicity profile. Uh, so uh, congestive heart failure. By the way, the, the package insert says congestive heart failure. It doesn't say HEFREF. So I'm still going to go with heart failure. Uh, I'm not going to catch on with the cool kids and call this HEFREF. So congestive heart failure, 3.4%. That's 12 patients. Uh, so not a lot, but to, what's a little worrisome in that in six of them, uh, ejection fraction recovered after discontinuation or interruption of the drug. That means in six it didn't recover. So possibly permanent heart failure could happen for these patients. There was also uh, skeletal fractures. Uh, there's a box warning for that. 5% in adults. Oftentimes that was uh, said to be traumatic. However, in peds, in the children, uh, 23% of those, of those kids had skeletal fractures, and they were atraumatic. So there's some mechanism that, that has not yet been identified or that I could figure out that's increasing this risk of fractures with intrectinib, especially in kids still having a lot of bone growth. Uh, there's a box warning for hyperuricemia. Uh, they don't call it tumor lysis syndrome, although one patient did die from tumor lysis syndrome. Um, but there is a hyperuricemia as a box warning, so something that does need to be monitored. Um, and you might think that's a good sign because the drug is, you know, 
presumably killing cancer cells. That's why we see the increase in uric acid. Um, however, it might not be that. Uh, the response rates, again, not so great with this. Uh, QT prolongation, as I mentioned, and then vision disorders. 21% of patients had some sort of visual changes uh, with entrectinib. So, uh, you know, fairly toxic drug. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, the overall response rate in the NTRK um, fusion gene uh, cohort was 57%. In the larotrectinib pivotal study, again, small study, overall response rate as primary endpoint, the overall response rate was 75%. Now, you can't really compare this apple to that apple. They're both NTRK fusion gene uh, kinase inhibitors, um, but they're slightly different accrual of patients here. So just to focus in as an example, sarcoma or soft tissue sarcoma was the most common solid tumor accrued in both of these studies. So if we just look at that sub, subgroup, for larotrectinib, there were 11 patients with, quote, soft tissue sarcoma. The overall, overall response rate in those patients with larotrectinib was 91%. So, you know, it's like 10 out of 11, okay? So 10 out of the 11 responded. With the intrectinib study, there were 13 patients with, quote, sarcoma. That overall response rate was 46%. So maybe there's some difference here in using sarcoma versus soft tissue sarcoma. Maybe, um, <clears throat> maybe this is not ideal as a site agnostic approval and we need something else that's gonna predict efficacy besides just the NTRK fusion gene. And maybe there are certain fusion gene products that are more amenable to inhibition with larotrectinib versus intrectinib. Uh, would really like to see a larger, if possible, uh, comparison study. So those are the NTRK inhibitors, brief, brief comparison. Uh, the very next day on August 16th, the FDA approved Fedartinib. Uh, and this is approval uh, approved for intermediate to or high risk primary or secondary myelofibrosis. So secondary myelofibrosis would be post polycythemia vera or essential thrombocytosis. So patients with PV or ET that then progress and their disease transformed into myelofibrosis. Uh, we have a couple JAK2, it's a JAK2 inhibitor. We have a couple JAK2 inhibitors on the market. Uh, for myelofibrosis, we have ruxolitib, which was approved ooh, probably six or seven years ago. And there's some, you know, tofacitinib is also a JAK inhibitor that's approved for RA. There's baricitinib as well. But fedartinib is, is approved based on the Jakarta study, which is not just a study, but fun fact, also the capital of Indonesia. This was a study of about 300 patients, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, 289 to be exact. Now, roughly a third of those are randomized to a 500 milligram dose, whose data we don't know about. A third randomized to the 400 milligram dose, which is now the FDA-approved dose, and then a third to placebo. Uh, the primary endpoint was efficacy, and this is the same endpoint that, or very similar, I think it's the same endpoint the ruxolitinib was approved, which is the percent reduction, percent of patients who had a 35% or more reduction in spleen volume. And I know the ruxolitinib approval was based off of spleen volume. I don't know if it's exactly a reduction in spleen volume. So I don't know if it's exactly that 35% reduction. So this is like a surrogate of all surrogate endpoints. We're looking at spleen size decrease. Uh, now we have lots of data. So we have like five-year follow-up data on ruxolitinib, some of which suggest overall survival endpoints, some of which suggest uh, in, you know, um, an improvement in renal outcomes in these patients. So we have uh, you know, some patient-oriented endpoint data with ruxolitinib, whereas fedartinib, we're just looking at a decrease in spleen size volume. And it did that in 37% of patients, they saw that more than a third decrease in spleen volume compared to placebo, which was 1%. Now, 
So, you know, myelofibrosis, um, not a disease state I'm terribly interested in uh, to discuss, um, but there is something really interesting here, and there is a boxed warning for uh, Wernicke's or Wernicke's, Wernicke's encephalopathy. I've always heard it called Wernicke's. Uh, you may also hear it called Wernicke-Korsakoff encephalopathy. So, uh, Wernicke was German, and then Korsakoff was Russian. They kind of described this, I think, kind of in parallel, not together, but independently they described this sort of syndrome that's caused by serious neurotoxicity that is related to thymine deficiency. And if you've ever done a rotation in a big city county hospital, you know, you learn about this with alcoholics and Wernicke's encephalopathy and thymine replacement at the same time you learn about banana bags and all that sort of stuff. Like the first day of rotation, if you're in one of those hospitals, you hear about that. Now, a little bit of background here. In 2013, Fedartinib had been uh, in development or in study for... Um, for myelofibrosis, and the FDA put a hold on its study in 2013 because of some serious cases of Wernicke encephalopathy, 1.3%, uh, which was maybe about eight patients. It was fatal in one of 608 patients. There's one person that died from this. Now, there is a, a blood, an article published in Blood of 2017 saying that uh, this was not due to thymine transport, so inhibition of THTR1. Uh, and they said this was GI toxicity. As we'll see, there is a box warning for GI toxicity causing nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and that malnutrition was the cause of this. Now, this was published by authors from Impact Biosciences, and hey, they're the ones who make the drug. Um, so they're saying it's really not Wernicke's encephalopathy. There's a, uh, an, ASH at, an ASH 2017 abstract saying there's no clear signal by this, uh, the one patient I think who died, uh, you know, was having severe nausea and vomiting, uh, refused to have a G2 put in. It was all malnutrition. Okay, um, and there's some comment that you know they they tested thymine levels in some patients. They weren't thymine deficient. Now, I find it a little hard to accept that GI toxicity is the reason these patients had Wernicke's encephalopathy because we have lots of drugs that cause nausea and vomiting, lots of drugs that cause diarrhea, and we don't see Wernicke's encephalopathy in these patients. So it might be a combination of the GI toxicity as well as something else. Um, and we'll come back to that to, to, to kind of finish out the podcast here. Uh, so jumping back up to the warnings precautions, boxed warning for Wernicke's encephalopathy. Patients do have to have thymine levels assessed, that's vitamin B1, uh, at baseline and then periodically throughout treatment. Uh, there's also a boxed warning for uh, anemia and thrombocytopenia. They do have to have platelets above 50 to start. It looks to be about the same level of anemia and thrombocytopenia of ruxolitinib. little difference there is there are different starting doses for ruxolitinib based on baseline platelet count. For fedartinib, it looks like you have to have platelets above 50 to start. Uh, Sixty percent of six patients had G, uh, had diarrhea. There's a warning and precaution statement for GI toxicity. Sixty-two percent had nausea, and we're told to consider a 5-HT3 antagonist or empiric uh, anti-nausea medication in these patients. <clears throat> what we don't have a warning for with fedartinib is a withdrawal syndrome that we do have for ruxolitinib. So some patients that are rapidly stopped off ruxolitinib can have a withdrawal syndrome that kind of mimics sepsis, uh, and they can get pretty sick. Uh, pretty fast. Uh, so, back to Fedartinib. A newer thing we're seeing now in package inserts. Now, we're pretty used to seeing um, the data in the PI about drugs being substrates um, to, you know, for 3A4, 2C19, whatever, for the peak like or not the peak like protein, but the SIP, uh, the SIP P450 enzymes. We're used to seeing that. What we're seeing a lot more of now 
is, uh, is data on whether or not the drug is a substrate or inhibitor for all these different transporters. So for example, fedartinib inhibits P-glycoprotein, uh, breast cancer resistant protein, which is also a drug efflux protein like P-glycoprotein, um, OAT, which is organic uh, anion, organic acid transporter, I can't remember right now, OAT, P1B1, OAT, P1B3, OCT, which is organic cation transporter, uh, and then multidrug and extrusion, protein 1 or MATE 1. Now thiamine is a substrate for OCT2 and MATE 1. Uh, we know that from in vitro studies. Um, we know that OCT2, for example, is in uh, the kidneys, and for example, cisplatin uses uh, OCT2 to get in that kidney and cause kidney damage, for example. And we know drugs like uh, metformin, cimetidine, uh, erdafitinib, vandetinib, drugs like that are OC2 inhibitors. Now we don't see, so that's probably not the cause uh, because we have drugs that do that. But it is involved in thiamine transport, possibly um, in the brain, possibly absorption as well in the GI tract. Same thing with MATE1. And there's a lot of overlap between drugs that inhibit um, thiamine transporter two, receptor 2, OCT1, OCT2, and MATE. So perhaps maybe fedartinib's inhibiting these transporters is in couple with the nausea, the diarrhea, uh, leads to a maybe decreased dietary intake of thiamine because of the nausea, maybe decreased thiamine absorption from the GI tract because of either inhibition of, of, of OCT2 or MATE, <clears throat> um, or maybe decreased um, um, delivery of thiamine into the brain. We don't really know. That's a really, really weird boxed warning for Wernicke's encephalopathy that we see. Something that we should be aware of. Someone will figure out what causes it eventually. The drug company seems pretty adamant in saying uh, it's not. You know, there's that ash abstract saying no clear signal. Uh, when they look for it, it's unlikely that that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> if it really happened, you would see a higher incidence of it. So there's, there's probably a certain type of person, um, if we could figure out, maybe it's a genetic thing, um, <clears throat> who uh, is more likely to happen with this, but something to be aware of. And of course, there's that box wanting to check thymine levels before uh, and after. So that's what I have for today, uh, entrectinib and fedartinib, wonderfully named drugs in my opinion. Um, thank you for listening. I really appreciate uh, you uh, downloading, listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod, both on Twitter and Insta. Uh, rate, review on iTunes. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.